People believe in God. Did you know that this is almost universal? Despite popular perception, across time, across civilizations, across continents, every culture, belief in God is there. And this is not limited to the backward or the uneducated. I looked this up and I updated my info. A 2019 Gallup poll showed that 87% of Americans believe in God. When asked the yes or no question, do you believe in God? 87%. When they split the question up to say, do you disbelieve in God? Do you believe that God might exist? Or are you certain that he exists? 64% said they are certain that God exists. From Oxford mathematicians like John Lennox to your next door neighbor, people believe in God. When you consider human history and human belief, theism, the belief in God, is normal. <laughs> it's the default position for almost everyone who has ever lived. From a historical perspective then, atheism is a novelty. It's new. It's uncommon. This is important to remember because people who deny God's existence rely on ridicule to persuade people, to make you feel stupid for believing in God. But when you're challenged on that, you shouldn't allow yourself to be made to feel like a freak or an outsider because almost everyone believes in God. They're in the minority. And the burden of proof does not rest solely on the believer. Now, the Bible itself does not spend very much time arguing for God's existence. It's assumed. Twice in the book of Psalms, Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, both say, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's not so much an insult as, come on. <laughs> the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The opening line of scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Most of us as children were led by our parents to believe in the existence of God as axiomatic. It's just true. You don't sit down there with your kids and run through a bunch of arguments with them. God is real. They just believe that because we taught them. But as children grow up and they begin to think about the world, they come up with questions. Josie, every five seconds, is asking us, what's that? What's that? What's that? Run through every book in my bookshelf. They're all books, Josie. Why, Daddy? You ever hear that one? Why? That's the constant refrain with little kids. And it's a parent's responsibility to lead their kids beyond simple obedience into understanding. It's okay to say, because I told you so, but as they get a little older, you want to explain to them why you told them so. In the same way, we accept God's existence as a presupposition, but it is okay to return and try to understand why. But we should distinguish, before we get going, a, a, a distinction between wanting to understand and trying to be sarcastic and antagonistic. A wise child will doubt his parents' instructions, maybe, but will obey out of obedience, trusting that the answers will come in time. Right? A, a wise child might not understand, but they might say, I think mom and dad understand this better than I do. And of course, when adolescence comes along, they seem to miss that. We all missed that somewhere along the way. But this should be our attitude. Even if we have doubts and questions, we should hold on to what we already believe until we can understand and not just assume that there is no explanation. The first time you experience somebody who really challenges your belief, it can be frightening. And you can feel dumb by not knowing how to respond to them. But you don't chuck out everything that you've ever grown up and lived for because you have questions. Some people think that that's what intelligence is is chucking out everything you've ever believed in because somebody raised an interesting question. 
Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in the things you have learned and been assured of, knowing, check this out, from whom you have learned them. He says, look at me, look at your mom, look at your grandmother, look at the apostles around you, the other men that you've worked with. Trust them. Even if you don't understand all of it yet, trust the people around you. There are countless men and women who have built admirable and enviable lives on the foundation of God's existence. Maybe even your parents, your siblings, your pastor. So if you have doubts, investigate your doubts, but hold on to your faith. Don't be a fragile ship tossed about by every wind and every wave. And every time some hip new guy comes in and wants to have a very strong point of view, oh, we go after this guy. Now we go after this guy. James tells us not to be tossed about by winds of doctrine. Hold tight, be a Berean, and investigate. But we do need to recognize, too, that everything beautiful and everything transcendent requires faith. At some point, evidence ends and faith begins. For some people, they're able to make that leap earlier in the journey. Some people have to go farther. Some say, I refuse to believe anything unless you can prove it to me empirically. And they drop that word like you're supposed to shudder when they hear it. Empirically, like a scientist. First of all, that's obviously inconsistent. I love you, honey. Well, let's see you prove that empirically. Excuse me? (laughs) We don't do that. We don't live that way. This is not how anybody lives. We do not require proof of everything we believe in some sort of itemized list. We take most things on faith. And if you're going to talk about science, for example, you're taking the reliability and honesty of the scientist whose book you're reading on faith. And in fact, God requires faith to have a relationship with him. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you ever think you'll come to the place where you don't need faith anymore, this is not the religion for you. When Jesus was pressed for a sign, by sign you could read hard evidence. He refused to give it. And I think there's two reasons. Number one, Most of the time, people who wanted to see a sign were not true seekers, but they wanted to expose and embarrass Jesus. In the same way, many who claim to be skeptics today, they're not skeptical of anything. They're just atheists. And they use the term skeptic because it makes them sound smart. They have long ago decided nothing will ever convince them that there is a God. So they come and ask questions because they want to embarrass you. They only engage in discussion to demonstrate their own intelligence. But a true skeptic and a true seeker is willing to be convinced when the appropriate evidence is presented. And the second reason Jesus wouldn't give hard evidence when pressed is because you are required to believe in God because he is God. Your unbelief is not justified if you aren't given sufficient proof. God is still God whether or not you have been convinced of it. Paul says in Romans 1, every person on earth is accountable to believe in God. The Bible says, God says, I have given you enough to hold you accountable for it. That requires faith. But because the object of your faith is real, your faith will be rewarded. So we're going to look at some evidence and some proof tonight for the existence of God. And I do not fool myself into thinking that a couple short minutes can end a debate that has raged for centuries, at least in some people's minds. But I hope what this can do is shore up maybe a crack in the foundation or help somebody overcome the hurdle of initial belief. Because belief in God is something that lives deep in a person's soul. I found almost every time the deciding factor in belief in God or belief in the non-existence of God is personal. It's emotional almost every time. We would say it's spiritual. 
But intellectual barriers sometimes can stand in the way of a person who otherwise would walk through the door. So our job is to take down as many of those barriers as possible so that we can start addressing the spiritual matters of the heart so that faith can be born there. We could do this for months if we wanted to, but tonight we're just going to look at two of what I think are the most effective arguments for the existence of God. Starting number one, don't freak out, what is called the cosmological argument. You know what logical means. It means the study of something. So you just add the word cosmos to that. Cosmological. Cosmos means world. Everything that exists. And there are many people that have used what we call the cosmological argument for the existence of God. If you want to look somebody up, there's a guy named William Lane Craig who rocks and rolls on this topic. Put very simply, this is, we believe in God because the world could not have come into existence on its own. Something cannot come from nothing. Everything that exists has a cause. This is applied to the cosmos, to everything, and therefore we conclude that the whole world itself must have had a cause, and that that cause could only be God. Colossians 1, 16-17 puts it this way. Colossians 1, 16-17. For by him, that is God, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Let's break this down a little bit. We begin with the idea that the world had a beginning. Now by the world, I do not mean the earth. I do not mean the solar system. I do not mean our galaxy. I mean space and time. I mean the cosmos itself. Everything began in a single moment. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is easy to prove from lived experience. Nothing is eternal. Everything has a beginning and presumably everything will have an end. It's sort of illogical and fantastic to believe that everything, even the universe, has existed forever. Even scientists will say this. They talk about the Big Bang, that there was a moment, boom, there was no world, and now there's a world. It began in an instant of time, and there was rapid expansion, and then the world began. And in fact, if you calculate the expansion of the universe, and you kind of work it backwards, you see, okay, all of this sort of shrinks back to what they call, <laughs> they call infinity, which is the scientific word for it, nothing. Even godless scientists point to the fact that the universe had a beginning. And if we say it had a beginning, then who started it? Kind of like an argument with children. Who started it, right? Well, some have postulated, no, that it didn't begin with that, with that moment. But there was another universe before that. And when that one collapsed, it collapsed into infinity, into nothing. And then it expanded again. So that's where it came from. Oh, that's great. All you've done is kick the can down the road, a universe. And we ask the same question. Where did that universe come from? It points to a beginning. And then people will say, well, here's the thing. There's an infinite number of universes, and we just happen to live in the one that works this way. I, I'm not even going to bother with that. I don't care how famous the scientists are. You made that up. You didn't prove that. In fact, your definition of another universe consists of the fact that you can't measure it. You made it up. So the cosmos had a beginning. It began. Now the next step is to say, if it had a beginning, it had a cause. 
There can be nothing that begins without a cause. Nothing begins on its own. There's always an agent, an actor that begins something. Even things that we think are spontaneous or look spontaneous, like the wind or the ripples in a, in a lake or gravity, they're all responding to various physical things that we can't see. It can all be traced back to a beginning. Ah, Tyler, you don't understand quantum physics. You're right, I don't. You see, quantum physics, particles pop in and out of existence all the time. So if you have a quantum field, things can pop in and out. So even science tells us that something can come from nothing. Okay, once again, you've just done the same thing. If particles can pop into existence on the quantum level, where did the quantum level come from? You're, you have to operate with the proper definition of nothing for, for this to work. You've only backed up the question. Everything that begins has a cause. Universe had a cause. So you begin to narrow down your options here. The world began. The world had a cause. What could that be? Well, it couldn't be an impersonal natural law because we're talking about a time before natural law. In fact, when you look at the scientific models of the Big Bang, what they'll say is, yeah, this all makes sense up until you get really, really close, and then physics don't work anymore. It's like, all right. So you can't say the laws of physics because the laws of physics began too. So where did they come from? And it must be a personal cause because you're not only talking about the beginning of an impersonal world, but of a personal world. If the cosmos represents everything that exists, you have to look for something outside of it. So what do you call an uncaused, all-powerful, personal being that could ignite existence? That's as good a definition as God as you're going to end up with, isn't it? A quicker way to explain this, in order for there to be reality, something has to be eternal. Something has to last forever. You could ratchet it back as much as you want. Something has to have been there forever. Only God fits that description. Now, this is before discussing the Bible, the Trinity, or the cross. All we've shown is that the world cannot exist without a cause, and that cause could only be God. That's so simple. Ha! You're going to be convinced by something so simple? Well, yes, I am, actually. Simple does not mean wrong. In fact, there was a time where William Lane Craig, go look this up, it'll build your faith so much. There's a video where he challenged Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, to a debate at Oxford University over the existence of God. Dawkins refused the debate. So he shows up and presents his argument that I just laid out, except he sounded much smarter than me. And there were three Oxford professors brought in to rebut him. And you get a little nervous in those situations. Like, oh no, what if they're smarter than him? What if they show up? What if they've got things to say that, that are going to show him to be foolish? They got up and y'all, they had nothing to say. It was embarrassing for them. The first guy, he, he says, well, look, I'm a physicist and we don't all believe in the many worlds thing. And he didn't actually address the argument itself. The second guy was a philosopher and he said, We've moved past belief in God. That's not what philosophers worry about anymore. This is a big waste of time. Again, did not address the argument. The third guy goes up and starts talking about evolution. And William Lane Craig gets up and goes, I didn't mention evolution. I'm talking about God before we even got to that. People think they can just throw that out there and like we're going to run scared, like they're going to throw it in their face or something. You go to Oxford University, the smartest place in the world maybe, some guy comes in and presents something very simple about why he believes in God. Bring in three smart people, and they got nothing. I was sitting there laughing, like, you've got to be kidding me. That's all you got? What have I been so worried about? They seem so intimidating because they love to ridicule. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. 
Even the greatest minds of the information age cannot contend with the reality of God's existence. You stand firm, you're going to come to a point where you realize, as I said, a lot of times it has nothing to do with the evidence, it has to do with the heart. And that's where the Holy Spirit can begin to work. That's the cosmological argument. Here's the second one. And this one hits more closer to the heart, I think. This is the moral argument. This works to engage the heart of a person as well as their head. The basic argument is since there is a universal moral law, there has to be a universal lawgiver. Paul wrote this, Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. So that although they don't have the law, they are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. That's Romans 2, 14 and 15. Paul saying even Gentiles, even Vikings, even Cherokee Indians who've never even heard of Moses, they don't have God's law, his Ten Commandments, but they live as if the law was real because God's written it on their heart, and we call that conscience. Every man on earth has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone? Yes, everyone. Every individual believes that some things, some actions, some thoughts, some beliefs are inherently right or wrong. C.S. Lewis talked about everybody has a sense of ought, like you ought to do something, or she ought to have done that. There is no society, there is no culture that has no code of morality. Even ours, which tries to accommodate every worldview and prides itself on refusing to judge people. We react violently to certain things that we consider wrong. Consider how people respond when they think that there has been something racist that happened. Or when people talk about child abuse or rape, how violently people react because it's wrong, and how we try to cultivate certain virtues. Even, even like the commercials for football now, we're trying to teach you to be tolerant and compassionate. We're raging for equality, right? So we have our moral worldview, even though we kind of say that we don't. Rare is the man indeed who doesn't even pretend to think he's in the right. People who don't believe in right or wrong, those are dangerous people. And that's the conclusion we begin to draw. Because universally people believe in good and they believe in evil, we believe that good and evil are transcendent. That is, they are real beyond what we think about them. Well, some people say, well, look, if you go over to this part of the world, Papua New Guinea, they think that these things are right, and you come over here to this part of the world, they believe those things are wrong. So it, it's all made up. Everybody makes up their own form of righteousness. No, that's not true. It's misleading. Because while there are differences in the application of virtue, often the virtues are the same. The principles are the same. For example, you have one culture that believes that revenge is wrong. If somebody kills your son, it is wrong for you to go and kill the person that killed him. And then you've got another culture that if you don't kill the man that killed your son, you can't claim to really have loved your son at all. And we're all ashamed of you. Those seem like the most polar opposite things you could think of. But what you have is actually two cultures exercising the same principle, which is that they value life. One culture believes that life is so precious that even a murderer deserves to live. Another culture believes that life is so precious that anybody that takes somebody else's life deserves to die. It's the same value applied differently. And even where there are serious differences in how we understand morality that does not argue against the existence of a true transcendent right and wrong, everybody has some understanding of morality. Nobody believes in nothing. And as I just said, the differences are usually exaggerated. 
Morality is a human universal, and that should cause us to stop and go, why? Now, some people recognize that, and they try to explain it like a scientist. Men like Sam Harris are the foremost proponents of this idea. They say, no, morality is not transcendent, but it's a social construct. Societies make up morality. It's evolution. For example, people say that murder is wrong because when we were evolving from monkeys, the person that killed the other guy in the pack was bad for the pack and he didn't get to have children. Therefore, all the people that believed murder was wrong survived. Until now, it's the dominant state of mankind and we're so baked into it, we can't get out of it. Now, some people say, look, yeah, they're real, but they're on an existential level. It's a force to be dealt with. They'll, they'll talk about the science of morality, like chemistry or physics. We just got to get in the lab and figure out what's right and what's wrong. And they, we don't need God to explain morality. It's not social. It's real, but you don't need God for it. But the thing is, if you don't believe in God, it undercuts the idea of morality in the first place. If you say that right and wrong, they just help us as a species. They're good for us. We can understand them and they make us better. But if they're just accidents, then no moral law is binding upon anybody. You know what else is a natural law? Gravity. And we build airplanes and spaceships and we defy gravity every single day and we think nothing of it. If morality is on the same level as that, why should we not be any less ashamed to break those laws? You can paint it in a very attractive light, but that's a really dark way to go. So we can choose what's best without somebody telling us what to do. We can choose what's best for the species and choose what's best for the planet. We don't need to follow those ancient codes. We're the masters of our own fate. And that sounds really good, but I wonder how does that preclude somebody from turning into a monster? If they say, I believe that morality was just made up, so why should I obey your rules? Friedrich Nietzsche, who was no lover of God, understood this. And he understood the consequences of his own teachings that he was saying. He's saying, I'm teaching people that they need to abandon belief in God. And he wrote a, a parable called the madman. That's where the whole God is dead thing came from. And what he was saying is, if we remove the idea of God, what are we going to do about right and wrong? People are just going to do whatever they want. I don't know how that's going to go. At least he was honest about that. The ironic thing about this is that people who believe that morality is a social construct or there's just a law like gravity, they still expect people to act morally. It assumes the values of good and evil, even as it tries to rip them apart. If right and wrong are the products of evolution, or if they're just the oppressive dictates of society, then how can you talk about what's best for people? Who's to say what's best? Why is life valuable? Why should we have love or peace or tolerance if it's just something like gravity that can be broken at will? Or if it's just something that our culture's made up? Brings us right back to what we said before, that it is a transcendent reality. You can't declare all morality to have no transcendent value and then expect people to act as if it did. If you stand up and you teach, there is no such thing as right and wrong. Live your life however you want. And then somebody goes out and shoots up a school. You don't then get to stand up and say, how could this happen? Because you just told us that we could live however we wanted. Well, I didn't think you'd go and do that. That's wrong. You see, we're right back. We're right back. And then there are some people that are so arrogant. They say, well, I can do that, but the rest of you can't. They call themselves supermen. That's what Friedrich Nietzsche's whole deal was. The answer is that good and evil exist because God exists. There is a law because there is a lawgiver. 
Right and wrong are functions of personality. They can only come from God. Trees don't have right and wrong. Storms are not right or wrong. Comets are not right and wrong. Only personal beings have moral ability. So morality could only have come from a conscious personal being, and that's God. Good is what is in harmony with God, that which is like him. Evil is what is in dissonance with the character of God. And I'll tell you, this whole argument, men like Robbie Zacharias pick this up and run with it. And they lead people to Jesus. It's amazing. Because most people have a very strong sense of right and wrong. And when you can speak to them about these things, they instinctively understand them. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in our hearts. People know this to be true. And you just need to draw it out of them. But the thing is, sin has corrupted our consciences. People say, well, then why are there evil people then? If we all know what's right, why are people evil? Well, that's what sin is. (laughs) That's, as Christians explain it, that's the whole problem. That's the whole starting point. 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 talks about people who have had their conscience seared with a hot iron. When we sin, we corrupt our minds. The first time you do something wrong, you sweat and you panic and you freak out. Second time, it's easier. Third time, it's easier. Before long, you don't even feel the prick of your conscience because you've given it a shot of anesthesia. Does that then mean that there's no such thing as morality? No, it means that we are wicked. Well, you're going to say everyone is wicked? Yeah, that's sort of the point. That's why Jesus had to die. John 16, 8, Jesus said, When the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. God is at our side telling the world by our consciences, that he exists. People today are crying out for justice. They scream and they write and they march in the streets because of justice. Why would we believe in justice? Because God exists and God is just. That's an open door to start talking about the Lord to people, the one who's someday going to mete out justice to all people. And the fearful thing is that you are not just, but there's good news. And then we're at the gospel, you see. So those two things, the cosmological argument. Because the world exists, it had to begin. And the only person that could begin something like the world is God. The moral argument. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And the only reason that is is because there is a law giver that gave us the law of right and wrong. But people will say, well, no, belief in God evolved throughout history. We didn't understand how the sun worked. We didn't understand how the tides worked or the harvest. So people started to say, there must be a magic man in heaven making the sun go round and round. We call that the God of the gaps, right? That we had gaps in our knowledge and we plugged God in the gaps. But now as science closes the gaps, we don't need God anymore. And yet people still believe. And that's entirely speculative. Think about that for a second. What circumstances could naturally produce a belief in God? If people are watching the sun go up and down for billions of years or whatever, and then some guy comes up and says, you know what, I think there's a magic man in the sky that makes the sun go up and down, and if we don't kill this lamb, it's not going to come up tomorrow. Who's going to believe that guy? They've been seeing it go up and down for every day of their lives, and now somebody's going to say that you're going to make this happen? It's much more likely that we began with a belief in God and that it atrophied because of sin over time. The standard posture of man is worship, and most people today still believe in God. Well, you have to prove to me that God exists. Well, actually, 87% of us believe in God, so you've got to prove to us why God doesn't exist. It's very easy to say, oh, people are just stupid, they're just unintelligent, they're superstitious. They're not like me. I'm smart. 
I'm in this category of people who can accept the way things are. I'm enlightened. But the thing is, most people do have a sense of the reality of God. And the thing is, when you look into your soul and you know that God is there and you know what you're like, that's a fearful thing. And people have to turn the other way and run as fast as they can to get away from that. That's why I think most vicious atheists are young men, cocky, arrogant young men, because they think they can take on the world. They're not afraid of anything. Then they get a little bit older and they get a little bit wiser and they go, okay, maybe we should think about this a little bit. And this is why we as Christians insist You've got to look at that part of yourself. You've got to ask those questions because there are answers. God exists. And we here as, as a church, we do believe in God, obviously, or we wouldn't be here. Revelation twenty two thirteen: God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And we could talk about this forever, but this is enough for now. We take a leap of faith, but we're justified in our leap of faith. The more we look into this issue, the more we realize there are good, solid reasons for believing in God. We're not alone. We're in good company when we do that. So don't bow to the mockery or the non-arguments of people who hate God. People who don't believe in God and yet hate God with all their might. And for no other reason, the world without God, with no purpose, no good, no evil, is too terrible to even be countenanced. But when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you get what the Bible calls joy unspeakable.